your Bibles with me to the book of Malachi. The Lord's prophecy to his people through his prophet Malachi will be in chapter 2, the very end of that chapter, verse 17, and we'll study through chapter 3, verse 4 this morning. Malachi chapter 2, 17, verse chapter 3, verse 4, and today we're going to look at the formative cleansing of God. This is a passage where the Lord talks about the purging and the purifying and the cleansing that Christ will do to his church as he also unleashes judgment and wrath upon the world. And so again, as, as we say this prophecy, I think I've said this a few times already, this is a time where we have to pay some special attention to understand the context and, and how these verses fit into the overall scope of the Lord's message to his people. Um, we will see as this section, this passage ends, that some of the Lord's people are indeed refined and purged and cleansed of their sin. And then the, the following section, picking up in chapter 3, verse 5, going through about verse 15, the Lord talks about the judgment that he will unleash upon those who do not come to Christ for redemption, those who are not cleansed by the blood of Christ. And, and so really this text kind of has a climactic um, progression. We start at the low and we go to the high, to the return of Christ, to his return in judgment, and his return in calling his people to himself. As we look at this, there's some interpretive challenges. Um, I think they become clear as we, as we look at the text and as we look at some of Christ's words in the New Testament, but we need to have our thinking caps on today. We need to not get lost so we can understand what the Lord is speaking of because, again, there's this progression that is really quite glorious as we go from this complaint of the Lord's people to the return of Christ. So let's give our attention to the reading of the text. I'll ask that you please, if you're able, stand with me as we read God's Word and we will read Malachi chapter 2 verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 4. This is the inerrant and inspired and infallible word of the living God. It reads, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, How have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like fuller's soap, he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. 
This is the word of God. May he write it upon our hearts to the glory of his name. Please be seated. Now let's join together and bow before the throne of grace and ask the Lord's blessing on our time as we look at his word. Our Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. You are exalted in the heavens, the name above all names, the King before whom all will bow, the great God and creator of all things, the sustainer of the universe. You are the sovereign ruler. You're righteous. You're holy. You're just. You're a God of wrath, but you're a God of mercy and compassion. Great is your faithfulness. Your mercy and your faithfulness extend to generation upon generation who will trust and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, it's such a privilege to sit under the authority of your word and your truth, for you have the words of eternal life. Where else should we go? Lord, for you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of you, which you have revealed perfectly in your word. Lord, as your people, we ought to desire to be made holy, to be sanctified, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if that is our desire, where else do we turn but to your truth? Sanctify us, O Lord, in the truth. Help our minds and our hearts to be attentive. Help us to put away distractions. Lord, give us humble and soft and pliable hearts as we look at, at this prophetic word Lord, it can be fierce and fearsome, but Lord, we know that the harsh realities uh, of these truths can produce soft and pliable hearts, and so we pray, Lord, that these truths of judgment and condemnation would soften our hearts, pray that the call to be cleansed and be purified would would draw us up out of the ashes of sin. Pray that as we remember the price that Christ paid for our salvation, that we would put off the arm of the flesh, that we would cut off the arm of the flesh, and that we would daily put on Christ. And Lord, as you instruct us to those ends through your word, I pray that your spirit would move in power. Lord, I pray that we would not be given to, to any other thoughts except to intently focus our hearts and our minds upon your truth. Lord, we know that the, the strength and the ideas and the plans of men fail in this time. For it must be your spirit working through the written and revealed word that our hearts are changed, that our lives are transformed. So I ask, O oh Lord, that you would teach us, that your spirit would, would shape us and mold us and conform us to Christ. 
Pray that you would show us Christ through your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would receive all blessing and honor and glory and power and dominion forever and ever, for you are worthy. Ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So just to reset the context a little bit, because the context is very critically important to Malachi's prophecy. We have seen the Lord remind his people of his faithful love for them, that he has chosen them, that they are called out of the world to be his people. He then commanded them, he instructed them that they are to fearfully, reverently worship his holy name. And then he brings this stern rebuke that we've seen. He rebuked the priest and he rebuked the people for their utter moral failures. In all this, the Lord's kindness, the Lord's mercy, the Lord's grace and love are clearly evident. And it's striking to to consider that context. It's striking to see the Lord's love and his call to holy, reverent worship to see it answered with such pride and such arrogance and such unrighteousness. That was the story of the people of Israel. And again, as we think about that, we must be clear. We must hear that with humble hearts and desire and strive that we not be like Israel. That we do not have the written, revealed, and true word of God, and yet we reject it, we reject the truth, we reject his call to holiness and live the way that we want to. That we don't hear the word with arrogant and hard and prideful hearts and remain in our sin, but rather as the chosen, called out people of God, we must hear the truth and we must submit our lives to it. So that's kind of the backdrop of the text today. And in a way, we kind of start turning the corner in this prophecy. The Lord has brought his rebuke. He's made his case against the people. There's still some cases to be made. But he kind of turns the corner now to, to look to the promise of salvation. But with the promise of salvation also comes the promise of judgment because there are two ways. There's the way that leads to eternal death. And there's the way that leads to eternal life. So, so we turn the corner and we start working towards this conclusion. And as we do that, chapter 2 ends with the people offering this complaint to the Lord. They offer a complaint to the Lord. They, they question his justice and his righteousness. And it's as though the Lord then responds to them and says, You question my righteousness You question my justice. Let me show you how just I am. But in showing you my justice as the kind and loving God that he is, we also see the point of salvation, that Christ came to seek and to save those who were lost. This section shows that purification for sin must happen. And that purification, yes, it has the eternal result that is already complete, but it has a present result, that we are purified, we are refined, our lives are cleansed and separated from that former way of life. 
The people question God's justice, and he reminds them that Christ, the King of kings, will come in judgment of their souls. This passage, I think it lays out best kind of as a series of scenes. There's kind of a flow here that I think, if we can understand, it'll kind of help you see that picture where we go from the argument from the least to the greatest. We see the people complaining, then we see the path clearing, and then we see the promised coming of Christ, and then we see the purifying Christ. So you see how that argument goes from the people to the great king of kings. It works towards this climax, the climax being Christ in his return and the work that he does when he returns. So let's begin by looking at the people complaining. The people complaining, verse 17 of chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? And in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or, or where is the God of justice? Now again, this kind of points us back to the history of the people of Israel. They failed morally, they failed in their faithfulness to the Lord, and despite that, despite the Lord's tremendous blessing to always return them to the truth, to always redeem them, to always forgive them, all they can muster is is this heart of ingratitude. All they can bring to the Lord is an unholy life, an unacceptable sacrifice. Does that sound familiar? Because it should, because that's what our lives would be apart from the redeeming work of Christ and the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in your life at this very present moment. If you were not redeemed and if you were not empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, you would be just like these Jews, bringing complaint, having an ungrateful heart, always having something to return to say to the Lord, never accepting his hand of correction, but always standing in bold arrogance against his truth. These people were always grumbling. They were always complaining. They were never satisfied with the good things the Lord would give them. And if they ever responded in in an inkling of thankfulness, it lasted only for a moment. And as soon as something got hard or difficult, their thankfulness was brought to an end and it was turned to grumbling and complaining. So as we walk through this, Let me encourage you to consider your own heart. For we must consider our own hearts to see if we are not like these Jews. You know, just ask the question, are you a thankful person? Are you thankful? Does that thanksgiving lead to a greater devotion to the Lord in your life? Because if not, it's not true, godly, biblical thanksgiving. Because thanksgiving to the Lord leads you to a greater devotion to Him. So ask yourself, are you a grumbler like the Jews? Or do you have a thankful heart as the Lord always instructs His people? So verse 17 begins really, really with this kind of rebuke from the Lord. He says, you have wearied the Lord with the, your words. The Lord is wearied by the vain and hypocritical speech and living of his people. And that was not, this is not the only time that the Lord says something like this. In Isaiah 43, 
Verse 24, the Lord said, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Now, I think this is interesting because we know the Lord never grows weary. He never grows tired. So what is he really getting at? And the way that we understand being tired or weary, the Lord doesn't experience that. But what does he experience? And what is he actually saying here? It's that his patience is being tested by the sins of his people. God is holy. He will not stand idly by while his people walk in sin. While his people have ungrateful hearts, the Lord has a passion and a zeal for the glory of his great name, and he will not let it be profaned by those who call themselves his people, but live utterly unholy lives. Now, this is a very fallen, a very shortcoming illustration, I think. But I also think it paints the picture of what's going on here. Think, think about a parent correcting a child who is in disobedience, who, who's maybe stubborn and hard-hearted and constantly gives themselves over to, to sin and disobedience. The parent does not ever cease to love the child. The parent does not ever cease to desire what is best for that child But if you're a parent, if you have a child, you know that you often can grow weary in that instruction. Your patience can be pushed. It can be tested. You can grow to the point where you just want to tell your child, stop doing this and do the right thing. Just plain and clear. And that's effectively what the Lord is saying. You have worn me out with your constant disobedience. You disobey, I return you to the truth. You disobey, I return you to the truth. You disobey again, I return you to the truth. I am tired of doing this, my people. Walk in righteousness. Dear church, hear that command of the Lord. Walk in righteousness, lest you weary him with your sin. Matthew Henry commented here, he said, It is a wearisome thing, even to God himself, to hear people insist upon their own justification in their corrupt and wicked practices. When you think about the the context here where the people are, are, are wanting to come back and give offerings to the Lord, but he rejects them. He says, no, I will not accept your impure offerings. And yet they are demanding effectively their own justification. They are desiring that the Lord accept their offerings when their offerings fall utterly and completely short of what the Lord requires. And that's a wearisome thing to the Lord. What does the Lord require of us? He requires that we do all that we do to His glory. And you think of that requirement, and then you understand how utterly short we fall. Do you give, do you live all of your life to the glory of God? Surely our desire would be to say yes. Surely our hearts even in this moment might say yes, that is what we want to do. But dear friends, we all miss that mark. We must be those who who turn quickly from sin, who are quick repenters, who do not weary the Lord with our desire to be justified while walking in rebellion while walking in sin. 
The Lord does love his people, and he delights in giving us good things and bestowing gifts and blessings upon us. But he does not do that when we walk in rebellion. So the Lord says, you've wearied me with the words, and yet again, as the Lord kind of interprets the people, he says, yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in him. Where is the God of justice? You you would think at this point that there would be some humility, some gratitude, some self-awareness in these people. I mean, we are towards the end of the New Testament here, really close to the closing of the canon of, of the Old Testament. So the Lord has a long history of faithfulness to his people. But rather than humility, there's arrogance. Rather than self-awareness, the people question the Lord's holy standard. Rather than gratitude, they question even his justice. And that's a fearful thing to think about, questioning the justice of the Holy One. Because he is just to smite each and every one of us in hell from this moment on for the rest of eternity, if he should so choose. But... For the blood of Christ. So this response is amazing. But this is what sin does. Hear this again. This is what sin does in the heart. When you constantly give yourself over even to small sins, those quote-unquote small sins build themselves up. They harden your heart. They callous you to the Lord's holy standard. And then you become like these people where the Lord requires of you to walk in holiness. And you yet say, what have I done wrong? Where have I broken your law? Lord, you're the one who is being unjust. That's what sin does if it's not checked and held accountable and repented of. Friends, that's why the church of the Lord must be holy in practice because otherwise we will walk in this type of rebellion these people are blinded to their sinful hearts and their sinful actions and they question God's goodness again if you consider the price of the blood of Christ shed for you at the cross how could you ever ever question God's goodness But that's what they do. And we must take care that we don't do this. When the flesh can be so deceptive, the enticements of the world can be so strong that we are pulled and whisked away into sin and into unrighteousness. But we must fight against that. How do we fight against that? We fight against it through the word. We have hearts that are submitted to the word and minds that are filled with the word. The truth informs our mind and then the mind informs the heart. And out of the overflow of the heart, we live and we act and we speak. So to not be like this example of the Jews, the one thing that we must do, the one thing that we must see, the one thing that we must be is full of the truth, full of the scriptures. And you just look at the, the rest of this response. I want to read it one more time just because it's, it's just so extreme. 
How have we wearied him? And then they say, effectively, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of God, and he delights in them. Where is the God of justice, they say? They're questioning the Lord's righteousness and his impartiality. They're questioning how does he deal with sin. And dear friend, listen to this. Every time you sin, you engage in that same practice. In effect, you say that the blood that Christ poured out on the cross was not more important than this sin that I want to pursue. Every time that you don't give yourself immediately to repentance, immediately to repentance, you engage in this very similar practice to profane the blood of Christ and to question God's holy standard and to trample on the very Son of God. Let me just say that if you're not in Christ... Every moment of your life is this rejection of the Holy One, this rejection of His holy standard. So the people are complaining to the Lord. They question Him. They disregard His holiness. And we just have to ask the question. We have to dig in with self-examination when we're under the authority of Scripture. That, that we, can, we can talk about all of these things. We can understand the text But until we start digging in and applying it to our own lives and questioning our own lives in light of what the text shows, we've really missed the point. So we must examine our lives and ask the Lord to help us avoid these types of sins. Do you question the Lord's faithfulness? And so that's something we need to ask ourselves. That's, that's something we really need to examine in our lives. Do we question his faithfulness? Do we submit to his sovereignty? Really, I think that's kind of the two overarching things that, that Israel was questioning here. The Lord's faithfulness and his sovereignty, his righteousness and his rule, his, his standards and his morality. Examine your life and ensure that you don't question anything about the Lord in this type of arrogant, prideful way. Examine your mind, examine your heart, and have a friend or a loved one who is comfortable to tell you the truth give you some feedback. Examine your own life in that way. And so then moving to to chapter 3, I want to look at the idea of the path clearing. the, The path clearing, and this is really the Lord's response to the people's complaint. Um, it flows directly out of chapter 2, kind of like Clark was saying in 2 Corinthians this morning. Uh, I don't think this chapter break belongs here at all. I think this first section of chapter 3 is the Lord's direct response to this complaint of the people. So, so it's a promise of salvation and a promise of judgment. The path clearing, verse 1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. So who is the Lord talking about here? Very clear from the New Testament, Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, that he's speaking about John the Baptist. Jesus in Matthew 11 said this. He said this, speaking of John the Baptist, he said, This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So this messenger is John the Baptist. He is the forerunner 
of Christ. The Lord is saying, I'm about to send my forerunner because at the close of Malachi, the Lord goes silent, right? He he does not speak to his people in the way that he had for some 400 to 450 years, but he's going to send a messenger. So in his last instructions, he says, be looking, I'm going to send the forerunner. So you think about that and you say, why is this path clearing? Why is this path clearer important enough to be included in in this instruction? And I think John the Baptist is relevant because of his purpose and because of his message. I'm going to send my messenger. That's his message, right? He is a messenger of the Lord, and he's going to clear the way before me. So that's his purpose. His purpose goes back to the ancient culture. In that day when a king or high-ranking official would go visit a region, he would send a forerunner. He would send someone to go before him to clear the path and to announce his coming. And that's exactly what John did. He, he came to announce the coming of Christ, to ready the path for him, not a physical path, but to make the declaration that the Messiah is coming. His time is near. He was preparing the way for the king and for the message that the king would proclaim and the work that the king would do. Now, obviously, in the ancient times, the roads were not um, as, as clear and as clean and as good of shape as ours are today, maybe not some of them, but those roads were dangerous. And so the forerunner would go and make safe the way for for the ruler or the king or the high-ranking official so he could have safe passage to the place he was going. John the Baptist, very similarly, was like a bulldozer, wasn't he? He he went and he plowed a path for Christ. He went and made ready the way the Jews were expecting a stately king, right? A stately king or some powerful king military ruler, and the forerunner of Christ comes as one who eats locusts and honey and dresses himself in camel's hair, and in part, I think that showed the people, or was to show the people, that the Christ who is coming is not this stately king or military power that you expect, because if he were, this would not be his messenger. This would not be his forerunner. The Jews sought an earthly ruler But Jesus came humbly and would die sacrificially. So that was John's purpose. But then also think about his preaching, his message. His his message was itself a forerunner of Christ. He preached repentance. You consider that he stood before the religious establishment, the religious elite of the day, and said, you brood of vipers, you need to repent. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He was bold. He stood up and declared the truth. He was not afraid to ruffle feathers, but rather proclaimed the message of Christ. Really, that's the very same thing that Christ did as the earthly cause of his being taken to the cross. He declared and stood upon the truth. So the people in Malachi were complaining to the Lord, and the Lord says, I'm going to send my messenger. He will come, and he will make ready the way for the Messiah. He will come, and he will declare the message. He is a messenger of the Lord, one who declares the Lord's 
truth, his gospel. And so that's what John did. But we were able to kind of look at that in the fullness. You know, these people had not seen John yet. But we have. We have recorded in Scripture some about his ministry, some of the things that he said. And we could, I think, just summarize with really two things, and that he was humble and that he was bold in his proclamation. If you want to turn to John chapter 3, I want to read, um, obviously this is the Apostle John writing, but he records some words of John the Baptist. And I think just while we talk about John the Baptist, I want to put these words before us because we are called to be the Lord's messengers too. Not in the exact sense that John the Baptist was, but we are to live in a like manner. John chapter 3, verse um, 25. We're going to read a longer, longer stretch here through the end of the chapter just to show you the heart of John the Baptist. It says, Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So they're saying all of your followers are going to Jesus. And John answered, he said, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. John's joy was made full at the coming of the Messiah. Verse 30 says, he must increase, but I must decrease. So he was a humble man, and then we see that he continues. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth, but he who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of what he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who receives the testimony of Jesus has set his seal on this, that God is true. This is the message of John the Baptist. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. For the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey him will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's humility in action. It's bold proclamation of the truth in action. May we be like John the Baptist. May we be those who are the forerunners, the messengers of Christ, that we serve him with humility and that we proclaim him with boldness. Those, those are two ideas that we have to hold in a correct balance and tension. Because humility and boldness can, can get a little bit messy. But by the Lord's grace, we proclaim with boldness, with power, with vigor, with conviction, with enthusiasm. But then we walk humbly. He must increase and I must decrease. So we've seen the people complaining, the path clearing and moving forward. Kind of in verses 1 and 2 of Malachi chapter 3, we also see the promised coming, the promised coming. It says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? So you kind of feel that tension as we read that, that in one way it's the one in whom you delight, the messenger of the covenant. But who can stand in the day of his coming? Who can remain when the Lord appears? And I think one noteworthy thing here is that we go directly from John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, to the return of Christ. Because Christ said in his first coming, he came, I said, I did not come to judge, but to save. He came to seek and save that which was lost. The, the work of Christ when he came in his first incarnation 2,000 years ago was not to judge. It was not to bring about wrath, but clearly we see this wrath played out in verse 2. But in the message of John the Baptist and in his coming, surely we see the work of Christ summed up. The Lord speaks of the return of Christ when he comes to his temple to judge the living and the dead. MacArthur said that the unexpected coming of Christ was partially fulfilled at his first advent, but it will be accomplished in full at his second coming. So it was partially accomplished when he came to win salvation, but it's accomplished in full when he comes again. So the Jews say, where is the God of justice? And the Lord answers them right here. He says, you want to know where the God of justice is? Here he is. He says that the Lord is coming. He says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord promises himself to come to dwell with his people. And we can stop and think about that with wonder and amazement. The Lord says, I am coming. Look at the phrase before that. He will clear the way before me. Uh, These are direct notes that Jesus is the true son of God. We have to understand that some of the Jews of Malachi's day were actually seeking this Lord, right? Some of these Jews really did look forward to the coming Messiah with trust in his work. Many were given, of course, to this legalistic, ritualistic, sinful, disobedient religion that men had adopted and developed. But there were some who were true people of God. And so they looked, and the Lord says to them, your Lord is coming. He's coming. Many would reject, but then some look to Christ as the true messenger of the covenant. But what does the Lord say about his coming? He says, the one whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He will come swiftly. He will come quickly. No one knows the day nor the hour of the second coming of the Son, but we look to it with eagerness. We live in earnest knowing that Christ will return. And he comes to his temple. He comes to that which is his to pull out his own people and to cut off and to judge those who are not his. That idea of him coming suddenly often carries with it this idea of judgment. So he comes suddenly with judgment to cut off the lost. And that gets to the crux of the issue. The Lord is promising to show forth his justice. The people are asking, Lord, where's your justice? And he says, it's here. 
It's in the return of Christ when he separates the wheat from the chaff, when he separates the sheep from the goats, when he divides the people and calls his own to himself and sends the goats to hell for all eternity. So he comes suddenly, but he's also, he's also the messenger of the covenant. The messenger of the covenant. He's the one to whom they looked. 1 Peter 1.20 says that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in the last times for the sake of you. He has appeared for you as a messenger of the covenant. Think about Hebrews chapter 1. The Lord spoke many ways long ago through the prophets. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus brought with him, he brought about by his own blood the new covenant when he fulfilled the old. So he is the messenger of the covenant. But friends, let's also realize that he is the one who procured the covenant. He is the one who ratified the covenant. He is himself the covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So he's the messenger of the covenant but he is the keeper and the creator of the covenant. And he is the one in whom, the Lord says here, the one in whom you delight. Now there could be a hint of sarcasm there, because again the Lord is bringing rebuke against the people, but he is also the one in whom his people do delight. We long for, we love, we look to, we desire Matthew Henry says here that those who seek Jesus shall find pleasure in him. If he be our heart's desire, he will then also be our heart's delight. So again, to to drive this to to the point of, of application, if he is your desire, he will be the one in whom you delight. If you come to him in salvation, he will be the great joy of your soul. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't take pleasure in the blessings that he gives us, but all of those pale in comparison to the great joy that we have in and through Christ. So if he is your Savior and your Lord, if he is your Master and your Redeemer, you will and you must take great joy and pleasure and delight in him. And so that's where you ask yourself, is my greatest treasure in Christ, or is it in something else? You, you fill in the blank there. Is my treasure in Christ, or is it in some other thing that falls short of Christ? And if the Lord is not your joy and your pleasure, then verse 2, this idea of his coming, verse 2 speaks to you if you are not in Christ. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears. Hebrews 10 says it's a fearful, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. So if he is not your treasure, your delight, the one in whom you have joy, then you must look to the second coming of Christ and know that he's coming in judgment. He's coming to bring wrath and you will not stand. So the people complaining, the path clearing, the promised coming, 
And now we've worked to the climax. Let's look at verses 2 through 4 and see the purifying Christ. And this, these verses are just rich with, with illustration from which we should be able to point our eyes from the present and see Christ. The purifying Christ. For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. So this is the glorious work of Christ, but it's also the terrifying work of Christ because in this we, we can see the picture of both judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. So, so let's just look. There's three descriptions really to focus in on here, and each one of them paints us a picture of the work that Christ does. Firstly, he's described as being like a refiner's fire. A refiner's fire, and we've seen this in First Peter, right? That we are refined by fire. And Calvin says that this fire it burns and it purifies. It burns what is corrupt, but it purifies gold and silver from their dross. So we must see this dual purpose of the refiner's fire, right? The Lord will burn away that which is corrupt. Those who are not in Christ, that in your life that does not belong to Christ. But that refiner's fire, it purifies and purges those who are precious to the Lord. In our redemption, the Lord purges and purifies us to make us like Christ. And we also see that he is described as being a fuller's soap. Now, I didn't know what a fuller was, but it's actually a laundryman. So, so a fuller soap is like the soap in the laundryman's hand that he would use to clean the clothes. And laundry, as difficult as it may be today if you have children, it was even more difficult in that day. There would be lots of physical labor involved just to get one piece of clothing clean. And to do that, you would have the soap in your hand, and the chemical makeup of the soap would help remove the stain from the clothes. And so the picture here is that Jesus is like that soap. His blood washes over the stain of sin. That is cause for rejoicing. His blood washes and cleanses the stain of your sin. Then the third description, this may be, be my favorite of these, if you will. It says that he is the smelter and purifier of silver. The smelter and purifier of silver. And James Boyce, the, the old Presbyterian minister, he had a, a helpful description of, of this process. Speaking of the smelter and purifier, he said, They melt the ore in a small portable furnace. And as the ore melts, the dross rises to the top and it's scraped off by the refiner. So, so it's melted down to liquid. The dross rises to the top. He, he scrapes off that which is contaminant to a precious metal. Then listen to this. It said, he said, the workman keeps peering into the crucible, removing the dross until he can see his face in the molten metal as in a mirror, and he knows then that the work is done. 
So do you follow that? That's what the Lord does. He melts us down. He removes the dross. He cleans and clears away the contaminants. And then Boyce concluded, in such a manner, God will apply the heat of affliction and discipline until he can see his image in his people. That's what the Lord does to us. He cleans, he purges, he purifies, he takes away all of the contaminants until he looks at us and we reflect his glory. Until he sees the image of his son. And then again, there, there's a beautiful picture even in that. That as soon as you're washed in the blood of Christ, the Lord looks at you and he does see his reflection. Because he only sees Christ because if he saw you, he would see sin. He would see unrighteousness. But he sees Christ. That's the eternal picture. And in the present day, he does that same practical work in taking away that which does not resemble or look like or reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord may sometimes, he may sometimes sanctify in a, in a more gentle, in, in, a, in an easier manner. But I think the prevalent picture in scripture is, is this of heat, this of affliction, this of difficulty where affliction and discipline are what draw us away from the world and draw us to Christ and make us look more like Christ. So dear friend, embrace trial. Embrace the fires of tribulation because in them you are conformed to your beloved Savior. And that's exactly what the Lord says he does. Look at verse 3. He will sit as the smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. That's practical righteousness. The Lord was rejecting their offerings because their hearts were cold and dead and far from him. So the Lord through Malachi says, I will burn all of that away. I will purge and purify, and then you will offer righteous, pleasing, acceptable sacrifices. This is the Lord's work. He said in Isaiah chapter 1, I will also turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And then I will restore your judges as at first. And after that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Dear friends, do we want to be the Lord's city of righteousness, his faithful covenant people? If we do, it's through that process of purging and refining and conforming to Christ. And the result of this is seen at verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old. So what makes the offering pleasing? It's the Lord's work, the Lord's refining, the Lord's purging and cleansing. But what's the result of that cleansing and purging? It's a holy servant. So it's made acceptable by the work that the Lord does, but the result of that is a holy 
cleansed, set-apart servant. So sum this up into a a practical charge. I didn't give you guys as I like to do. I didn't give you a, a thesis at the start, but here it comes at the end. Delight yourself in Christ. Delight yourself in the cleansing that he brings by living in and pursuing righteousness so that your offering, so that your worship is acceptable to him. It all starts with that, delighting yourself in Christ and the cleansing that he brings. If you just delight yourself in Christ but are not willing to walk through the fires that he will take you through, then your worship is not going to be acceptable because you've fallen short of submitting your entire life and heart and soul to him. By our own strength and by our own merit, we will never be acceptable to the Lord. If you work and walk in your own strength, you'll be like those in chapter 2, verse 17, where you question the Lord, where you have a hard heart, where you're arrogant and full of pride. But you submit to the Lord. We submit to Christ and we find our deepest and greatest joy in Him. We forsake the world and find our greatest delight in our Savior. We fix our eyes upon Christ and run our race with perseverance. We look to his promised coming. We've talked about his return. We look to that. And those who hope in that return of Christ, 1 John 3 says, purify ourselves just as he is pure. We must know that Christ allows all affliction to come upon us. That he uses, he is at work to conform us to himself. So delight yourself in Christ and live a life that pleases him. Put away sin and put on Christ. Don't have that complaining heart of the Jews, but have a heart that overflows with thanksgiving and gratitude to the Lord. Walk in submission to his work of purging and cleansing you, because in that he is making you like Christ. So may we walk in him. May we be found in him. May we be steadfast in Christ. And we do all that by his spirit living and working in us. So may we walk by the spirit in submission to the truth, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, we